My boys tell me we need more children's features. Well, maybe this morning will feel like a children's feature. We'll see. Do you like a good story? Are you a fan of a good story? I am. I'm just really bad at telling them, but I'm going to try. It's my job after all. I want to tell you the story of Leviticus. And as we go closer to that story, something powerful jumps out at you, and you might catch it. I I catch it as I read through it, that it's a revealing of God to his people. It's God introducing himself. It's God laying out his kingdom and who the king of the kingdom is. And what's been so helpful for me as I read through it is to imagine the Sermon on the Mountain. And you're going to see a lot of similarities as we go through Leviticus and the sermon that Jesus gave. And this Sunday, you and I are going to go through the major themes of Genesis to see what was going on in the world of the people who first heard the words of Leviticus. And next week, Pastor David is going to go through Exodus, the story of the salvation of God's people. And then after that, I believe we'll have a broad enough picture of what's going on to be able to read through the stories and understand the people who heard these stories. But to understand this, imagine with me this morning the expectations at the Sermon on the Mountain. What did they assume about the king? And what did they assume about his kingdom? I imagine Jesus that day and Matthew going up on that hillside and his disciples coming to sit and listen and the crowds of people gathering around And they had expectations. Some of them may have expected the king to be someone with political savvy. Someone of influence. Someone who could work their way into the structure of Roman world and Jewish leadership and steer the people back towards freedom. Like a Sadducee. Other people probably hoped that the king would be bloodthirsty, that he would be a warrior, that he would be a general, that he would be a military-minded person who would gather the troops and get things done, get rid of the Romans altogether, like a zealot. Some of them most likely imagined their king and his kingdom looking like a teacher, looking like a rabbi, Someone who would take the book of Moses, someone who would take the laws of the Old Testament and expound them in a way that would lead to the people walking in obedience and God would see them and declare them righteous and set them free. Someone like a Pharisee. I believe they all had expectations of what Jesus would be like and what his kingdom would be like and they were waiting And here comes this carpenter's son. Here comes this nobody from the middle of nowhere. And he speaks the words of God. And as all the people gather around, 
He goes back to their most ancient teaching in the Old Testament. And he says, let me reveal to you who God is through his teaching. They all had expectations, and we do too. I have expectations as I await the king. And we're going to weigh those against the words of Scripture to see if our assumptions and our expectations line up with the king who we receive. You ready to go back in time? What if you take your Bible and go from Matthew, from where Jesus spoke, and you go back to the days of sitting at Leviticus? when they sat at the foot of a different mountain and heard a different sermon. I landed on Leviticus 20. That was pretty cool. This original audience, as they come out of Exodus and arrive at Sinai, the Lord God descends. I can't steal all of David's sermon from next week. The Lord God descends on the mountain and reveals himself. And he says, this is who I am. And this is my kingdom. But that generation struggles so much in their sin and unbelief that they actually are decreated as a people. They are scattered across the wilderness and they will never see the fulfillment of God's kingdom. What catches my eye is the people at the foot of the mountain hearing Leviticus and hearing this teaching, for a lot of them, it was the second generation. Hear me out. The children of those who went through the Exodus experience. They were teenagers when the Red Sea was split in half. They were teenagers when the sacrificial lamb was given at Passover and the life of the animal was arched over top of their homes and saved them. They were teenagers. When God descended on Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments were given, when the earth shook and the sky was lit up with thunder and lightning and the sounds, they were teenagers. And their parents failed God. But now 40 years has passed and they are at the foot of the promised land. They can see the kingdom that's been promised. It's right there. And Moses stops and he teaches the people the laws of Leviticus. It's actually believed that Moses is the one who helped to put together the first five books of our Bible, that he would have helped to write down, to help put this in the place that it is, Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if you actually read through Deuteronomy, it's called the second law. It's the second giving of God's law to his people because Moses stops the nation at the foot of the promised land and rereads most of Leviticus for them so they would know. Imagine you're at the foot of that mountain as Jesus gives them this instruction. Well, Moses does, right? Jesus, in the Sermon of the Mountain, knows that in just a year or two, he's going to be gone and they are going to have to do this on their own. Moses, at the foot of the promised land, is going to give them this beautiful Leviticus law, knowing that he's not going to go into the promised land. They are going to have to do this on their own. So he'll give them God's instruction, the revealing of God and his kingdom, and then trust in God that he can lead his people where they need to go.
So for me, when I imagine reading through Leviticus, when I'm imagining what it would have felt like to receive these laws and what these would have meant to them, I imagine families. I imagine people with kids. I imagine grandpa and grandmas. I imagine generations sitting side by side at the foot of the hill as Moses gathers the people knowing that he won't see them soon. And as all the people gather around, Moses says, I'm going to read for you the story of our God so that you will be prepared to enter this kingdom. And Moses begins like this. Moses would have said to the people, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And as all the kids lean forward and they're listening to this story, God is being revealed to these people, right? God said, let there be, what was it? It's light, and there was light, and it was beautiful, it was good. And God goes through the rest of creation. God spoke, and there was, and God spoke, and there was, and God spoke, and there was, and it was good, and good, and good. What they're probably not doing is using Genesis as a key to debating evolution. They're sitting as families and they're imagining the Elohim of heaven, the God of heaven, speaking and the world exploding with creation. They just came out of Egypt. They lived for 400 years where God didn't speak, where God looked powerless and weak, where Pharaoh looked like God, and their God was silent. This story reminds them all that their God is the God who speaks and creation bends at his word. Something Pharaoh was powerless to do. Then God made man. God made mankind in his image and in his likeness and God came near to man. You see, the pinnacle of his creation is the making of someone who will shepherd the earth, someone who will worship him and glorify him, someone who looks and lives and operates in a way that mirrors him. And they would be in this beautiful friendship and in this beautiful relationship. They would come near to each other. You see, Adam And his partner, Eve, God makes man and woman, places them together, and they are this perfect combination of humanity, and they're placed within a sheltered garden, a place of life, a source of life that a river flows out of, and that God dwells in. God walks with them, and they know God. It's this beautiful picture of the kingdom we see in Revelation, God and his people as one undivided, unbroken. 
the way it was meant to be. But the people on the edge of the promised land have never experienced this. They experienced the opposite. For hundreds of years, God was nowhere near them. So could you imagine a time in history where God would walk with his people, be in their presence, experience each other face to face? Well, at the end of Exodus, there's going to be a tabernacle, a dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. God will come near again. You see, as God comes near to his people, his people make a fatal mistake. His people will choose themselves above God. They are tempted, it says, by the serpent, by the craftiest of all creation. This creature comes in and gives them a half-truth, but a lie. The God is withholding something from them. And if they simply reach out and grasp what is not theirs to take, they can reclaim something that God would withhold. On one hand is obedience to God, and on the other hand is autonomy. We will decide for ourselves what is good. And man chooses himself. As Eve is deceived by the serpent and falls for these lies being spoken, Adam is standing there, listening to this. We imagine in full disobedience, doing nothing to stop it. And the command to not touch this tree, the command to not eat this fruit was given to Adam before Eve was even made. The brokenness of humanity when man desires himself above God on full display. Can you imagine the kids sitting with their moms and dads on the edge of the promised land listening to this story? Can you imagine the kids? This is where if you're doing the children's feature, the kids would interrupt the story. Don't touch the fruit. <laughs> Shh, you tell the kids. Can you imagine Moses is telling this story? Imagine there's, I don't know, 100,000 people. Imagine there's hundreds of thousands of people. Who knows? And Moses is trying to tell the story to this next generation. And he hits the Adam and Eve story. And the kids are all standing up. Stop it. Don't touch the fruit. As they walk into disobedience, the earliest signs of salvation are already being put on display. And Moses, I imagine, is explaining this to the people through Genesis, that in Genesis chapter 3, if you look down to verse 15, God gives salvation to his people, and this is where he's cursing them, because they are going to have to be expelled from God's presence, and they will be accursed people who will experience pain and death, heartache, and yet God gives hope in the midst of this curse. He says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, the offspring, hers, and yours, he's saying to the serpent, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Friends, as you hear this story, cling to this verse that from the moment we disobeyed God and chose ourselves above him. God already speaks to the people and says, there will be a day when this brokenness will no longer rule over you. 
There will be a day when you will get the serpent back for what he did. There will be a day when the son of the woman will crush that serpent. Through the lineage of the woman, the serpent will be crushed. The serpent will bite the heel, but the head will be crushed in the process. So you imagine a generation of people watching for someone to die and yet defeat Satan at the same time. It shouldn't surprise you or me that Genesis is filled with genealogies because now we're waiting for the offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent and bring salvation to God's people. We're waiting for the blameless one to appear. So following them being expelled from the Garden of Eden, you have story after story of the generations that follow and we're watching for who that person will be. And yet as we go through generation after generation after generation, the people of God actually become the people of wickedness. This is where the children's feature gets really somber and serious. Instead of generations of people slowly leading to them loving God more, they walk away to the point where God says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, but God regretted making mankind. You see, God is looking for blamelessness in a sea of brokenness. He's looking for someone who will walk with him. And yet, the inclination of the human heart is to walk towards ourselves, and that precisely is away from God. So we're stuck all these generations later with a creation full of God's image, full of God's reflection, but all they reflect is themselves. They don't reflect him at all. So God says, I will take Noah. He is blameless. Verse 9 of chapter 6. He is tamim, the Hebrew word blameless. I will take him. I will put him in a basket, one covered in tar, in pitch. And in this basket, he will be saved through the waters. And all the kids are shouting out loud to Moses, that was you. You were saved in the basket. And all the moms are saying, shh, he's talking. Quit interrupting Moses. God decreates his heavens and his earth in this flood of chaotic water that sweeps across the earth. All of a sudden, all the good things that God made needed to be erased. And we're left with one blameless man in a world of chaotic water, God starts again. This time, though, this time we'll get it. This time we'll figure it out, won't we? All the water comes down and creation is clean and out comes Noah and brokenness. Noah's sons, the very next story, are sinning against God. His one son that brings a curse upon him, and he's the great-great-grandfather of the people that live in Canaan. God can restart creation, but as long as it is filled with broken people, creation will be broken. And on and on the genealogy goes. 
Noah's sons, their sons, their sons. Until finally, we hit the great city. The people, the ones who've chosen to walk away from God, have gathered together to accomplish a great thing. And in their city, where they've built their walls, where they are safe and have no need for God of heaven and earth, they build a tower. And it says that they desire to build this tower to make a name for themselves. Who needs God when you can build a structure that will reach into the heavens? The whole world will know what we are capable of when the world was supposed to know what God is capable of. Up this tower goes, level by level by level, reaching higher into the sky. And God comes down, meets these disobedient people, and he decreates it again. He scatters this whole generation of people. He scatters them. He confuses their language and spreads them out around the earth. It's a supernatural story. But do you see how the themes connect? Do you see how these families sitting and listening to this would have instantly connected it back to the decreation of the flood? Do you see? It's just a repeating of a cycle. We walk away from God, God scatters. We walk away from God, God scatters. The Tower of Babel, where one day the city of Babylon could be. So is there hope? We've waited for the snake crusher. We've waited for the serpent stomper. We've waited. And yet, who is left who walks with Yahweh? Who is left? In Genesis 12, we meet Abram. This man who lives far away. He lives in Ur of the Chaldeans. That's nowhere near the promised land. And God calls to this man and says, will you walk with me? Friends, will you walk with me? And Abram replies back, yeah, I'll walk with you. And in faith and obedience, he travels away from his home to this new kingdom that God is providing, this promised place. And God sees that faithfulness to walk with him and he blesses Abram. Not because Abram was worthy of being blessed, but because God has chosen him. Abram didn't choose God. God pursued him. Oh, it's so amazing. Because this now is the great, 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 great 400 years grandpa of these people sitting at the edge of the promised land. This is their family. So how bizarre would it be to try to explain to the kids, as moms and dads, that as Moses is going through Genesis... This was your great-great-grandpa. God spoke to him and called him, and he listened, and God has chosen our family. Our family has been picked. Abram has no kids. And the word of God comes to him and says that, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, Genesis 15. And Abram has none. And he's an old man. But God says, this kingdom will be built by me, not by you. This will be my kingdom. Do you catch that theme? My kingdom. I will build it. I will fulfill the promise. 
He doesn't take a 20-year-old and say, I'll build the kingdom through your kids. He takes a 75-year-old and says, I will build the kingdom through your children. And his wife is barren. They can't have kids. And then they wait. Oh, they wait. Because God has made this promise, and yet the child isn't coming. Abram's wife does something she was never meant to do. Watch this connection, right? She takes something she wasn't supposed to take. She grasps it and gives it to her husband and says, Here, take this, take my servant, and build the family. We can do what God's not capable of doing. Take her and build a lineage. Build the seed of the woman who will save the world from the serpent. And Abram and his disobedience does it. And God speaks to him and says, what are you doing? This is my kingdom that I will build. You can't do this. And this child does not become the blessed one, not the one who salvation would come through. They have to wait until they're almost 100 years old to the giving of their promised son by God, Isaac. Praise God that Isaac appears, and then God is going to ask Abraham the most difficult request that a person could be asked. All the kids lean forward because the story's getting very serious and intense, and Moses is continuing. God in heaven will ask Abraham to give up his one and only son whom he loves. This is the way the kingdom will be built, through the sacrifice of a loved and chosen and supernaturally given son. Abraham has to make a choice. Will he cling to what God has given him, this boy, or will he be obedient and take this son up the mountain and offer this son back to God? It doesn't make sense. Why would God request the sacrifice of a son? I thought the serpent crusher, I thought the seed of the woman, I thought it came through our family. And after a hundred years of waiting for a child, the child is here and God says, give the child back to me. And in Genesis 22, Abram rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And off they went to Mount Moriah. And as they get closer, his son is asking him, Dad, I see the wood, I see the fire, I see everything needed to worship God. Where is the sacrifice? What does Abram say? He says, God will provide the sacrifice. God will provide the sacrifice. Up this mountain they go, and Abram builds this altar. He laid the wood in order. He bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abram reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. And the Lord spoke. Do you see how everything changes when the Lord speaks? See the power of God in that moment? God speaks to Abraham. The angel of Yahweh spoke to him from heaven and said, Abram, Abraham, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, 
your only son from me. And then they could hear it. Who does a good ram noise? Does anyone do a good ram noise? I don't really do one. Ah! They turn around, and there's a ram. God provided the animal. It was right there. How did they not hear this animal stuck in the bushes? How did they not hear this animal right there the whole time? All of a sudden, the animal's there, and Abraham goes over, and he takes the animal, and he worships God by giving up the life of this animal for God. You see, God has called us to trust him. God has called us to be blameless and to meme. God has called us to be holy like he is holy, to be his image bearers, his reflectors on this earth. And in that moment, you can't tell me Abraham doesn't reflect the image of God. This is someone that God can work with. This is someone who God can bless and walk with, for this is someone who walks with God. The Genesis scroll, the story keeps moving. You get Isaac's family, Abraham's son, Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob's sons. Genesis ends with the adventures of Jacob's wild family. He has this younger son, Joseph, who's sold into slavery, who God uses to save the nation of Egypt and save all the people of the world by feeding them during a famine. Jacob also has another son. He's a bit of a troublemaker. His name's Judah. By the time you get to the end of Genesis, Joseph has saved the world. Joseph is the one his father loved. Joseph changed everything. And yet the birth of our Savior doesn't come through the line of Joseph. Listen to this. The snake-crushing promise given to Adam and Eve in the garden comes through which son of Jacob? It comes through Judah, the transformed one, the broken one, the one who earlier in the story is so self-consumed, he's struggling with sexual immorality, he has this incredible negative story in Genesis where he completely fails, and by the end of the Genesis story, he's willing to offer his life in the place of Benjamin, the youngest son. If you have to take him, take me, I offer myself. God picks that son of Jacob. That's a son that Jesus will come through. As you get to the end of Genesis, things don't look so good. The people of God have actually moved to Egypt. They're actually living further away from the promised land than they've ever lived in the days of Abraham. Where is this serpent-crushing king that we were promised? Where is this salvation, God? Where is this ownership of the promised land that hasn't taken place? 
Wouldn't they have had expectations of the king and his kingdom? And yet here they are, and they've been unmet. And you're going to find out in the very beginning of the Exodus scroll, in the very beginning, that the next Pharaoh will completely forget Joseph and God's people, and they'll become slaves for hundreds of years. Wouldn't it have looked like God completely failed? Wouldn't it have looked hopeless? Like God either was powerful enough and didn't care, or God had no power at all to save them. And yet, friends, hear me when I say this. The kingdom, the kingdom's not what it seems. All of our expectations about how God would save his people and reveal himself, friends, it's not what it seems. You see, they need to go through a time of brokenness to be saved by a Savior. They need to become utterly desperate to appreciate the gift of a God who loves them. They need to experience the deepest brokenness to then be revealed the greatest holiness of God. They need to experience the kingdom in a way that would have messed with their expectations so much. And here's Jesus. Go back to Matthew, Jesus, Sermon on the Mountain, all these common folk all around him, no Sadducees, no Zealots, no Pharisees, maybe a couple Pharisees, who knows. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not what it seems. My kingdom is for you. My kingdom is transformation. My kingdom is me, and it's here. Friends, as we prepare ourselves to read through Exodus and Leviticus, I want to warn you that even today, in our world, the kingdom is not what it seems. And for you and me, if we come to God with improper expectations and assumptions, We'll be utterly surprised. And it's no doubt that when new people to faith come to find Jesus, what they find might completely and utterly confuse them. Because you might think that all these Christians would choose to follow Jesus if Jesus' kingdom is full of blessings and gifting for them. So you look at a church with 10,000 or 20,000 people in it, and I bet, I bet that the pastor talks a lot about what you receive in your faith from Jesus. But really, our kingdom is so much more about what it's going to cost you in Jesus. But it's fun to hear what we're going to get. And the people in the days of Jesus, they were waiting for what they would receive. They were waiting for freedom from the Romans. They were expecting the king to cater to them. But when Jesus shows up and speaks this sermon, the sermon is all about us being transformed back to the image of God. These people coming out of Egypt, hoping for this promised land, this promised kingdom, God reveals himself to them through Leviticus, and it's all about them being transformed back into the image of God. Friends, the kingdom's not what it seems. 
because it's not about us. Because if it was all about us, we would be the king, but you and I are not the king. Jesus is the king of this kingdom, and the kingdom is him. And that's, we couldn't ask for anything greater than that. Lord God, would you show us yourself? Heavenly Father, would you reveal yourself to us? Would you show us as we read through your word and explore Leviticus, would you show us who you are, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God? Would you reveal yourself to us? We desire your kingdom to come. We desire your will to be done. For you are the Holy One. Holy is your name, Lord God. Holy Spirit, would you work in the hearts and minds of our Bridgeway family to know you and love you more this Easter season. Not to build our kingdoms, not to build lives for us that we desire, that please us, that are centered around us. Please, God, reveal to us the abundant life that comes from abiding in you and in your kingdom. Would you guard our evil and broken hearts from desiring ourselves above you? Oh, Father, you are the only one worthy of pursuing, the only one worthy of worship and praise. And we celebrate you. We celebrate you. Lord God, thank you for the reading. Thank you for the reflecting and the meditating on Genesis today. And I pray that it be a blessing to our church family. I pray, Lord, in the days to come that you would reveal more of yourself to us through the reading of Exodus and Leviticus. Would you bless, Lord Jesus, the family as they go from this place? Would you shine your face upon them, Lord Jesus, give them peace? Would they reflect you to this world? Would they reflect hope and life to this world? That is our prayer, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone.